Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, well, you better hold on to your seats because they're about to violently blast you out of your fighter jet. I'm talking about ejection seats. And then Josh boards an aircraft of a different sort. Actually, that flight got canceled. But fortunately, one band, nay, one collective of entertainers mended his broken-ass heart. These band members do more than subcontract Rube Goldbergers and void treadmill warranties by exceeding the performance envelope. They also perform zero-gravity stunts as informal cosmonautologists in the Russian Vomit Comet. I'm talking about OK Go. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh, what? (laughs) (laughs) How are you? We got to start over again. I'm just kidding. I'm good. I'm great. (laughs) Where I'm hanging out in uh, actually the very same spot I was in the last time we talked. Isn't that amazing? You're supposed to do interesting things throughout the week, so you have something new to talk about. This is the opposite of that. Well, I did go fly my ass off for the last couple of days, so that's... Oh, nice. Yeah, I went to Ecuador. Oh, man. I it's so crazy that your I job haven't... will just pop you down to Central America. I haven't... Uh, cr- actually, no, uh, Ecuador is in South America, but I did oh, stop in Hon- Honduras, which is in Central America. <clears throat> awesome. I think... I don't really know. I, I haven't really looked at a map in a while. Yeah, you're not a globiologist. <laughs> that is true, and that is a real thing. Uh, well, all ologies are real. I did something very awesome today. Well, good. I went skydiving, finally. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know you skydived still. Yeah, it doesn't seem like I do lately. I've been weathered out the last five weekends in a row, but today, did it. It was awesome. Did three skydives. Uh, worked on launching... Uh, four-way sit fly round out the door which oh nice for all the skydivers listen to this which is most people you know that's really hard yeah it was pretty cool <laughs> sit fly exits are definitely um multiple times more difficult than head down exits it's just like it, our body it is exciting. not meant to sit in free fall it is meant to shoot towards the earth in the most <laughs> Fatal and dangerous position possible if something goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, like if you asked an alien how a human would fly, yeah. it would be head down. That's the, that's the position that a human is supposed to fly in. I mean, just look at a badminton. What do you call this? A birdie. Look at a badminton birdie. That it's is a head down position. That is the shape of my body. My my head is the ball. My ass is the whatever the feather. feathers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feather ass. <laughs> I feel like we've talked about this before. <laughs> It sounds yeah, so a, familiar. Pretty uh, pretty basic analogy to a human flying upside down. Oh, okay. But that was awesome. Skydiving was great. So I'm like, um, You're I'm current. in a really good mood today. You're all current. And I'm current, yes. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. I feel like, I, th- I don't know if I w- should talk about this because I feel like we've already brought it up on the show, but I do feel like I have permanently altered the direction of my friend's life who uh, Alex, I uh, fan and listener of the show, got her to do uh, a love tandem. Alex. She's so awesome. Got her to come out and do a tandem. You know, I just like, hey, like you should go do a tandem. I'm at the drop zone. This is when I was at Mile High. I was jumping with uh, like JoJo and Tiffany and Pippa and John and just the usual crew of ultimate badasses. And um, guess who uh, 
popped in to do a tandem and now is like totally hooked on skydiving. She's probably going to be teaching stuff about canopy flying to me soon because she's doing all these like professional canopy courses and it sounds pretty. It sounds like to get an A license, there's a lot more required than what you had to do when I became a skydiver many eons ago. Yeah, it's pretty intensive now, especially uh, here at Mile High in Colorado. They have uh, their program is, I believe the A license program is built into your AFF training. So like when you become a skydiver, it's just, you just keep doing additional levels past the seven jumps that normally take to get certified. And then uh, those jumps, you know, they mark off a bunch of things on your license card, which it's a pretty good system. It's yeah. like it's a lot of when I started jumps, skydiving, a lot of uh, required coached jumps and different canopy rate or uh, canopy courses and stuff. Yeah, like people will definitely complain about that. Like, oh, I don't want to be forced to do this, but it actually is not a bad idea in the beginning because when I started, as soon as I graduated with the most rudimentary of knowledge, which is what you get whenever you finish your seven skydives, it takes for them to say like, okay, you're ready to jump out of an airplane by yourself. Uh, and then I knew nothing and I didn't know where to go and there was no real program. So I do, I do like that the sport is kind of evolving that way a little bit. Yeah, definitely. That's what it's all about is change and evolution. It's all about evolution. That's uh humans were bad to fly. Yep. <laughs> yep. Grow some feathers. You'll be like a velociraptor. You'll be amazing <laughs> at skydiving. So what is on your off top today, Brett? Well, I uh, sent you a link. Um, I've actually been sitting on this topic for a while now, but uh, the reason that I had sent this um, video to the crew bar a while back was because so basically I'm going to put the link in the show notes, of course, as we always do, but it is a uh, test dummy ejecting from like a mock-up of a cockpit. I mean, it's like a portion of an airplane, just the cockpit portion on like a rail it's a rocket system. Sled. Yeah, it's a, exactly. And it's incredible. It is incredible. I've watched it so many times. It's so violent. It actually hurts my body just to watch this video. Well, but, don't they say if you have like three ejections, you're no longer flight worthy or whatever it is as a, <laughs> as a fighter pilot, it's some old wives tale, I think from, Fighter pilot lore. You, uh, yeah, you permanently um, get your badminton status revoked. Yeah, very your spine serious. Is compressed. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but on the side of the cockpit, it says uh, Mike Silver, I think it is, <laughs> and uh, very close uh, remix to our friend Mike Silva's name. But um, anyway, so this this video clip I'm going to share. It's called. Uh, uh, fighter jet ejection seat slow mo rocket sled test at USAF high speed test track. So very rolls off the tongue. Very concise, but it is a descriptive video title. Uh, so these these tests took place at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. Now I know you know what an ejection seat is because um, you know before you got your PhD in contentology from Harvard, didn't you first major in entertainment gore and then do your master's in war movieology at Yale's uh, Violence in the Science and Arts program? Yeah, okay. nailed it. First that's try. What, that's what I thought. Well, um, I could barely even remember it. I'm very impressed. <laughs> thank you. Well, for those um, of you that don't know much about ejection seats, I mean, it's basically a system used to rescue the pilot of an airplane in an emergency um they're entirely exclusive to military aircraft i i did try to do some research on this 
I could not find a single example of an ejection seat being in a civilian aircraft. Even for like an eccentric millionaire or billionaire that buys a former military aircraft, which does happen, the ejection seat is totally deactivated. Um, they're incredibly dangerous. They can easily kill pilots and the ground crews if they're not uh, properly cared for. Yeah, so that's, I, a, that's a very, uh, that's a pivotal plot point in Top Gun. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so um, I did, I wanted to do a little digging. I wanted to find some ejection seat facts. <clears throat> and I found an article by Blake Stillwell on uh, wearethemighty.com. And I will also share the link in the show notes. It's called 11 Amazing Facts About Aircraft Ejection Seats. So you besides, won't believe number four. <laughs> you won't believe. Pilots hate this simple trick to <laughs> lose two inches around their waist. <laughs> two inches off their overall height. <laughs> so um, besides some really cool photos that are like really hard to comprehend when you check them out, a few cool things that I learned. Uh, the first successful ejection was all the way back in 1910 and was initiated by what? a bungee cord. Um, the German Luftwaffe perfected the ejection seat during World War II. And the of first. They did. The first, of course. Yeah. <laughs> those Nazis were good at almost everything. Engineering. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were the best at hubris. <laughs> good at everything except being decent. Uh, <laughs> So the the first combat ejection was in 1942. So um, <clears throat> not all ejection seats are seats. The aircraft uh, supersonic F-111 used pods to eject the crew. The B-58 Hustler tested its ejection system by ejecting bears. Let's get <laughs> let's get Peta on the phone. <laughs> okay. Um, now this is interesting. So if you need to eject something that's three <laughs> times your body weight. Yeah. So parachutes need time to open, as you know. Now these, in these early, uh, they're called zero, zero ejection seats, meaning zero altitude, zero airspeed. So this was like a more advanced ejection seat technology. So these early zero, zero ejection seats used a sort of cannon to shoot the pilot out once they cleared the canopy. Um, and it, this obviously put a, an incredible force on the pilot. So later, the more modern zero-zero technology used small rockets to propel the seat upward and a small explosive to open the parachute canopy, and it cuts down the time that you need for the chute to open. Um, and obviously, it saves some of the forces on the on the body. I guess. I guess the rocket seat is better than the uh, the shooting them out of a cannon. Yeah, I'd imagine because with a rocket, you could probably somewhat stage how fast it ramps up. With a cannon, it's probably just more of an explosive. You know, you shoot right. it ballistically. But what I what I liked about watching this video that you sent, and something I've always kind of wondered about with ejection seats, is when they fire off, there's always like a boosting charge, and then there's a secondary charge that shoots out the back at a forty-five. Mm -hmm. And anytime I've seen ejection, ejection seat video, it's always, you know, like a plane in flight. So you have nothing relative. So you don't really get a sense of the speed that they're traveling. But on the video you sent, when they're traveling 700 miles an hour along the ground, you really get a, a good visual picture of why that 45 rocket is there. It's 
to help them maintain their forward speed so they don't come out. It's like they're hitting a wall. <clears throat> right, definitely. Well, um, on that note, I some numbers I was incredibly shocked by because when you watch this slow-mo video, you just do not think anybody can survive um, an ejection seat, you know, or like maybe it's like a 50% chance of survival or something. That's the assumption. Now, a recent study found that the survival rate for ejection was as high as 92%. Wow. And actually, the 8% uh, is kind of a user error. It's basically the pilot waited too long. Uh, they waited until the last second to eject, and that was kind of the, they found to be the cause of that last small percentage. Um, <clears throat> and finally, ejection seats have saved more than... 7,000 people. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot That's more incredible. than I, than I a lot. anticipated. So yeah, just depending on the altitude and the airspeed, these seats accelerate upward between 12 and 20 Gs. So pretty amazing. Uh, that Not they've... supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but with, I, you know, given my um, <clears throat> vast knowledge of human physiology i would physiologist i would concur with your assessment 20 g's not good for your body no no so yeah that's um there's one more video i am gonna link it's you know my dad flew the a6 uh i've brought that up before and there there's a compilation video i found of multiple eject ejection incidents that got caught on tape. Uh, but you could just skip to the last two because both of them are out of the A6. And they're both pretty insane. One of them is like the plane is almost turned at a not quite a 90 degree angle. And I, oh, I, wow. I guess almost shooting towards the ground. Exactly. I mean, they, they say there's like, you know, um, at some point you're just going to be launching yourself into the into the water that's like 40 feet away, but both of them survived. One of them didn't get a full deployment before he hit the water, but it said both pilots escaped with minor injuries. So that's kind of a fun video. If you're, if you're into this sort of carnage. That does sound fun. Yeah. I used to have a video growing up. Um, I don't remember where we got this, but it was called no easy days. And it was almost no editing to it. It was just this black and white footage. It was all about, aircraft carrier disasters and crashes. And there were so many uh, videos of them landing, missing the hook. And so they're, they try to power up and get off the deck again and they just don't have enough power. So they're punching out and then the aircraft is just like slowly winging over and dumping off in front of the aircraft carrier. One of the that might have been actually is, one of the that might be the A six because it looks like it's just I guess they were yelling at him to you know add power so I, I thought it was yeah. launching the A six I don't think it was during like a landing go around but um, you know the video said they were like trying to yell at him to like go full power but he had had an engine failure so he's yeah. like he's like uh, obviously that's not gonna help. Um, but you know, did what he could, but the plane just looked like it was about to fall out of the sky. It obviously stalled and started just twisting to the right. But, um, I think that I had is, that video growing up too. That's really, I weird. remember another clip where they land and it seems like, no, this is on a launch. They called it a cold cat, cold catapult launch 
where the catapult is supposed to shoot the plane off of the deck, it like has a, a weak, like weak pressure behind it. It starts pushing it towards the edge and they're just slowly rolling off the edge and they're just about to come to a stop right at the lip of the <laughs> aircraft carrier and the guy punches out and right before he punches out, it comes to a complete stop and then the force of his rocket bounces it. It rolls oh, like two feet and it goes off the end. Oh no. <laughs> it's just such like a, com- a comedy of errors. I got to watch it's, that one. That's hilarious. That's great. So I, I saw another video. This is strange because I've watched this like five times. This was on Facebook, so I don't know if I can link it. But it was a, it may have been recent, but it was a F twenty two crash out in California that the uh, they crashed during a refueling exercise. But it comes down like maybe half a mile away from these people that are just camping out in the desert. And so they film the aircraft come down, huge fireball. They look up, they're like, there's the parachute men. And then the they're, they're, they think, oh, should we go check it out? And as they start walking towards it, all these Blackhawks come in and land and just like cordon off the area. So that was a, it's, it's pretty intense video. And I guess you kind of, I don't really think about military exercises happening over my head. But imagine that like coming down, you know, just you're just hanging out there four wheeling and it blows up. I don't know if you can hear that, but somebody shooting off fireworks. Is uh, that what's happening? So yeah, <laughs> celebrate for once. The, uh, the background noise that is unintended is not from a camp V party or uh, a dog barking or it's, it's on your end of the microphone. So that's kind of your jam world's noisiest podcaster. <laughs> yeah. You know it. Well, that was really interesting. I think about things like ejection seats way too often. Actually, I had one more thought. I knew you did. I do think about these a lot. Yeah. But uh, (laughs) I've always thought about, like, if you're flying, you know, if you're a fighter pilot or something and you're flying over a war zone, like your dad would do, you know, in in Vietnam, how much of it is just like, wow, they're really going off out there. (laughs) Maybe there, maybe there's an ejection seat firing off above my house, but it's like, you're, you're in such like a God like perspective and the amount of power that you can wield as a fighter pilot or a bomber and how quickly your scenario would change if you had to punch out because you would go from almost being invulnerable to going through this extremely traumatic experience with the ejection and then coming down in enemy territory with your, you know, your M nine pistol strapped to your chest and your little <laughs> squirt bottle of water. It, it's just such a, such a your perspective little squirt shift. bottle of water. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think, I don't know. I, I'll ask my dad. Uh, I have a feeling that being in a bomber doing low runs over enemy territory, mm-hmm. taking on small arms fire at night doing like 400 knots. I don't think you feel invincible or godlike. Maybe not in that scenario. I feel like it would feel extremely uh, exposed and dangerous. And um, yeah, I feel like there'd be a vulnerability there, but, but not as vulnerable as landing a parachute into the forest and having to survive off one squirt bottle of water. Yeah. So what's on your content circuit? So actually, uh, I'm I'm very glad you asked that, Josh. You knew it was coming. 
that that is the show's format. Um, so I actually I have I didn't really have anything like a couple days ago because um, I have been flying a lot. But actually, on my deadhead back from Ecuador, because it was it's such a long duty day that we could fly the first two flights and then we had to sit in the back for the flight back. Um, so I had this book and it's it's one that's been on my list for a while. It's called The Hell That Was Paradox. It's all about Paradox Valley. Uh, it's by this historian, Howard Grieger. Apparently the West End of Colorado is like one of the most uh, previously violent, wild West tales. Um Paradox is, it's essentially where Bree and I are at. And what the, a cool name for a place. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to get into why it's named that. I mean, this. I bet that was scary in the old <laughs> so, West days. You roll into Paradox. So, one of the quotes uh, that's in the book, it actually comes from another author, Frederick Jackson Turner, but he quotes it in uh, uh, The Hell That Was Paradox. But he said that the frontier is the outer edge of the wave. It's the meeting point between savagery and civilization. And he's waxing poetic. Just, he says that the laws could not be obeyed. And this, this part of the West was a lawless place because the laws were unsuited to the needs and conditions. So you literally could not abide by the laws and survive. But yeah, so uh, according to another memoir quoted in the book, uh, he said that the uh, Paradox Colorado called it the Slaughterhouse of the West. Whoa, man. So, yeah, I, I definitely can't wait to read this. It sounds pretty interesting, and it's, like, you know, as ultra-local as I can get with, like, a historical novel, you know, nonfiction novel about the area that I'm in. Um, but then I literally couldn't keep my eyes open, uh, so I haven't gotten too far. But... I got another one on my content circuit that I'm excited to tell you about. Literally a few hours ago, I went to go see the first movie that I have seen uh, since pre-COVID days, and it was a follow-up to one of my favorite movies that I've actually covered on the show on episode 30, uh, A Quiet Place 2 is out. Oh, (laughs) wow, that's out, huh? It's really, really good. If there was a movie that would finally... Get you out of the hotel room. Yeah, exactly. That definitely seems like it's right up Brett's alley. Oh, man. It's extremely good. And I love how... um, So the first movie, like, really kind of keeps the cards close to the chest in terms of the monster. They don't really, like, show it. And then they, like, have a little payoff at the end. But I remember, like, pausing a lot and looking at the monster even before I was doing research to cover it on the show. I just thought it was like great world building in that movie. And I just loved the look of the monster. And I just loved how they like didn't reveal it like that closely or that clearly. This movie really delivered on kind of the tension that was built in the first movie. Like we got a lot of insane action, like awesome close ups. The effects were incredible. Of course, the acting was amazing. So, yeah, it's. It's definitely one to check out. I would risk getting COVID to see it. I am vaccinated, so I'm not that worried about it. But if you're not vaccinated, go ahead, pile into a movie theater, check it out. <laughs> Brett <laughs> is not a medicalologist. <laughs> you know, them showing, um, you know, hiding the creature in the beginning and then showing it in the sequel is 
That's the Alien Aliens model. Ooh, I and like that, yeah. It served that franchise well. In fact, that was about where the franchise started to fall apart right after that. Well, um, I guess we're going to disagree because Alien versus Predator. Fun, the, but uh, not a good movie. <laughs> what about Alien versus Predator 4, the Predator Bugaloo? Oh, yeah, that one's, I'd say the quality goes Alien, <laughs> Alien versus Predator 4, Alien Bugaloo, and then Aliens. Okay, that's that how I I put that chart together. Gotcha. So how about you? What's on your uh, content circuit? Well, I found a new podcast, and I don't find a ton of new podcasts these days. And this was a total random click. I saw a thumbnail in Spotify. I was like, oh, I'll give it a shot. It's called Darknet Diaries. And I'm not like a hacker oh, this by is, any means. This is what you sent me that I have not checked out yet. Yes. Okay. It's very good. It's all about stories from hackers. And one of, I'd say there's a lot of episodes. I'm like, I just can't even follow this. This is too technical for me. But they have, they also have, it's like a, I don't know, like a mini selection of episodes that are about penetration testing, which not as exciting as you think, Brett, but still pretty exciting. It's these people do, uh, it's, it's security testing, but it's multi-staged. The first part is physical penetration testing, which is where they try to gain access to a building. And then they do digital penetration testing where they, try to get people to plug in USB drives. They try to get behind the counter, get passwords and companies will hire them to do this. So they're essentially hiring these guys to commit felonies on their behalf to test the security of, you know, a bank or a courthouse or something. So they have a lot of stories. They're like white hat hackers. Yeah, exactly. They call it actually, they call it red team. Hmm. So uh, the red team is, Essentially, they're doing black hat, black black hat hacking. That's a tough one, <laughs> but they're doing it on the behalf of the good guys. So they call them red uh, red team, which is really interesting. A lot of really cool terminology that goes along with hacking, and those are the stories that I can relate to the most because even though I'm not a you know technical guru, I can still appreciate how someone socially engineers their way into a a courthouse and you know puts. They leave like a calling card on the judge's desk or whatever to sh- show that they were there. It's all really interesting. That is fascinating. So that's a, it's a cool show. I'll have to Dark check Net that Diaries. out. You know, I, my understanding of hacking, it's like not what you see in the movies of sitting at a computer and, uh, you know, having some sort of like terminal screen up where you're like typing some crazy and, oh, it's the whatever is doing the whatever. It's more about like, calling some you know calling a business and convincing them that you need this phone number or that you're a relative of this other person and it's much social engineering yeah it's much more about like being a con artist and being confident than it is about having technical abilities but once again i don't know anything i'm just At talking all? towards a microphone because that is the <laughs> format of the show like i said indeed it is <laughs> Well, that show is very great. And, uh, you know, this show is also very great, Brett. I'm glad you showed up today. It's not one of my favorites. I uh, haven't I haven't listened to it recently. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, w- I didn't listen to our last show um, 
I wanted to, to, to see how the audio quality was, but all those dark Boy Scout jokes really, uh, really, it was unsettling to say the least. You took us down a path, that's for sure. <laughs> you started it. I was talking about knots. <laughs> all right, well, let's take a quick break. And we, when we get back, we are not going to get into knots. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Josh, I have not yet thought of what I want to say to come back in from the break. So let's just eject. <laughs> let's just get going. Right into some content. Sounds good. All right, so today I'm doing something that is a first on this show. It's something that we've discussed before, but we've never tackled it. And it's something that may require us to update our theme music. Oh, no. It's so, a whole new genre of content. It is. And once I do this, it can never be done for the first time again. So are you ready? That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. On you, not me. Yeah, that's all right. I've been <laughs> prepping for this for a while now. Uh, I, I think that covering this subject matter is going to give me tenure as a contentologist. Oh, wow. Because it's a, it's a step up. Yeah, I can no, I, I'll no longer be able to be voted off the show. But today, Brett, I'm going to cover a band. Oh, interesting. I that was actually some of the the feedback that I got on uh, that I got early on from Jerron and Diana, uh, friends and early fans of the show. They love music. I mean, Jerron is like a musicologist. And, uh, you know, they asked why I hadn't really like dipped my toes into the musical waters because I also love music and I just didn't really feel like it fit within uh, the style of content that we cover. But really, anything is content if you consume it. Well, I found an angle that fits perfectly with our show format. Oh, I cannot wait to hear about this. So this is a band that makes amazing music that you and I both love. Uh, it's This is a band whose songs run through my head constantly as part of the soundtrack to my life it's a band though that i'm not really here to talk about their music which is fantastic and if a band's music which is fantastic just to get that straight isn't the theme of today's content piece then there must be something pretty impressive about this band otherwise and this is a band that is known for creating videos that i'd say almost defy the scope of human creativity i, I would think that if they weren't so expertly crafted by humans and they transcend the mere music that they are, you know, supposedly a video for, and they become this coexisting piece of art with the music complementing the visuals and the visuals elevating the music to a place where it may never reach on its own. Of course, I'm talking about the band. Okay, go. Oh, nice. I thought you were about to Rick roll all our listeners, but I, <laughs> oh, I did, I was thinking, that would have been good. I was thinking, okay, go and their treadmill extravaganza. And the one where they like pop out of some ghillie suits out in a field. I, this is very interesting, Josh. So you're talking about the band is the content, not yes. really the content creator. They are the content. They are content. Yes, they interesting. are. Okay. They're ultimate performers. So, OK Go is an American band from Chicago, and they've been described as alt-rock or pop-rock or indie pop, as well as any other combination of those words. And uh, they started in Chicago, and out of college, they were kind of succeeding in the club scene, 
but then they broke big as regulars on the live tour of the the podcast This American Life. I thought that was a really interesting fact that that's kind of where they got their start. But this is a band that's known for their elaborate Rube Goldbergian one take human performance yes. videos, <laughs> which have drawn over two hundred million views on YouTube. And I, th- in fact, I think calling these guys a band is kind of diminutive. They're really more of like a multimedia experience facilitated by the creation of some of the best alt indie pop music available today. And that they're, if you've ever seen one of their videos, and it's a very good chance that everyone has seen at least one of their videos, you know that the music is, I think it's extremely catchy. But now when I hear the music, what I'm really experiencing is seeing the videos in my mind because the videos are just so impactful. And if you haven't seen an okay music video, you are dead to us. <laughs> no, you're not. Please stay <laughs> oh, okay. subscribed. We love you. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the point of the show. I'm hoping maybe there are some people that haven't. So this is an easy one. It's just a go great to YouTube point. and check out a few videos. But I hope some people get turned on to these guys if you're not already familiar with their videos because it is life-changing. I really should not be berating our listeners. You're absolutely right. No, they're fantastic and we love them. <laughs> well, I mean, I do. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel. <laughs> so, okay go, uh, OK go was formed in 1998 and it includes the front man, Damien Kalash, the guitarist, pianist, slash vocalist, Andy Ross, the drummer, Dan Kanapka, Dan Kanapka, and uh, the bassist, Tim Norwood. And... The song and video that rocketed these guys to prominence was the one you mentioned earlier, Here We Go Again, which featured the Mm -hmm, band mm -hmm. uh, performing this elaborate four-way dance routine on treadmills. And that video video was named Most Creative Video by YouTube in 2006 and uh, Best Short Form Music Video during the Grammy Awards in 2007, and it was even parodied on The Simpsons. So that one had a huge cultural impact. And it was beyond impressive in its, in its choreography and its execution, but it was a mere shadow of what was yet to come. You know you've made it as a thing when you appear on The Simpsons. Indeed, yeah. Unless they predict you, and then you know that you're going to become something <laughs> yeah. later. <laughs> exactly. Maybe they are, The Simpsons really is, they are the puppet masters of the future. That's what it seems like. <laughs> it, it really is, yeah. We should probably cover The does. Simpsons at some point. I, I but, would be unqualified to, but I know you, we, maybe we can have Derek as a guest star. I think that's a great idea. Ooh, all right. So where these guys really jumped off in my mind was the video for This Too Shall Pass. And I feel like even if you aren't an OK Go fan, you may have seen this. In fact, I might, I honestly could probably say this about all these videos. Um, so this song features a literal and ridiculously elaborately precise Rube Goldberg machine. This thing fills an entire warehouse. And the machine by itself would be so impressive. But their performance within it is what makes it so much amazing, so much more amazing. So the video starts off with Tim Norwood, uh, the bassist. He's in this painter suit, and he's covered in red paint. And he starts by kicking off a row of dominoes with this little toy truck with the State Farm logo on it. And that's another thing they do. Like, these videos are so elaborate and expensive to produce that they often have like this corporate sponsorship, but it's, you know, the, 
sometimes they'll use the products as an integral part of the performance. And luckily they didn't do that in this one. There wasn't like an insurance broker portion of this uh, Rube Goldberg machine, but those corporate sponsors do kind of come into play later. So he kicks it all off. And from there, every single component hits a beat of the song, including some parts where the machine plays these percussive portions of the song. And that was something that Damien Kulash, the lead singer, specifically requested of the Rube Goldberg machine designers that the music would drop at some point and the machine would play part of the music. So they then, didn't make this this uh, Rube Goldberg machine themselves? No, and I'll tell you a little bit about uh, who created it and how it was made a little bit later. I don't know why I assumed that this you know, these, this incredibly talented multimedia experience content creating team also happened to be extremely good at engineering complex <laughs> machines. Maybe because you're not good at estimating uh, human potential. <laughs> That's, that is true. That's why I've been hating on our listeners so much, despite the That's fact so they're wrong, all Brett. beautiful, incredible people. Yeah, they're amazing. So he, you disappoint uh, me, listeners. So periodically, <laughs> one of the band members... They're covered in paint. They'll pop up in the frame. They'll lip sync part of the song. Again, it's all coordinated with what the machine is doing. And one of the super cool things that they do in their videos, on the regular, they'll take turns lip syncing to the video. So it really takes the focus off of Damien as the front man, and it puts focus on the entire band as being an integral part of the creative process. Seriously, for years, I didn't know who the lead singer was because in all of their videos, they all take turns singing. Which that that's a really unique thing for a you know a, an industry that's predominantly dominated by egomaniacs to have that kind <laughs> of that kind of collaborative experience. I think with music, they should have had them all taking turns finger syncing the bass because we all know that bass is the backbone of any musical endeavor. And it's true, and it's uh. <laughs> That, that actually is true, but like a backbone, you just don't really even know the bass is there unless you go looking for it. <laughs> That's a good Predator reference that you just made. <laughs> yeah. So at one point in this video, there's this hammer smash. It comes down and breaks a TV, and on the TV is the Here We Go Again video. And our good friend Derek pointed out that he thought that that was kind of their way of putting that video to bed to show that there's like something new and better coming from them. Uh, And there's right when that happens, you see in the background, there's at least eight smash TVs on the ground, which kind of gives you a metric for how many times they tried and failed with this Rube Goldberg machine before they got the final take. But at the end, the whole thing ends with you finding out why they're all covered in paint, which uh, with a Rube Goldberg machine, it's, it's defined as a, a ridiculously elaborate machine that performs a simple task and you find out what that simple task right is right at the end. And it's really cool. But then the camera pans up and you see all the technicians who built this machine celebrating. It's so glorious. And I love that they leave that in because that really gives you a sense of, you know, this wasn't a, this wasn't a guarantee they were going to get this video. It took, you know, months and months of work. And I know really, I'm really gushing about this one, but I, I think it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen on the internet. Well, what's incredible is I started playing the video silently on my phone while you talking about this. And somehow when you talked about the uh, 
hammer. That happened exactly when you brought it up. And then the video just ended. So I feel like you synced it up perfectly to me watching this right now. That's incredible. Well, I've been inundating myself with <laughs> yeah, OK guess. Go for the last two weeks, so maybe it's rubbing off on me. Your timing is impeccable, Josh. Indeed. It's one of my strong things. Maybe. The other one is not talking. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can figure out a way to incorporate a Rube Goldberg machine onto this show. It's a audio medium, so I don't think it would make much sense. Okay, that's true. But good try. We can describe um, what's happening. There we go. As it's happening. You can easily fill 45 minutes with that. <laughs> so this thing was built by Sin Labs. There's LA-based art and technology collective, and they it includes mathematicians, rocket scientists, basically any high-level intellect or engineering background people are part of this uh, the Sin Labs collective. So they secure this warehouse in Echo Park in LA, and they start building this thing. And here are some of the quotes. Um a Rube Goldberg machine is, a, in essence, a trial and error thing. This is Adam Sadowski. He's the president of Sin Labs. He told this to Wired. For example, the wooden tracks used to guide the metal balls at the beginning of the video had to be clean and waxed to keep dust from slowing the balls down and making them stick. And the angle of that board was set at a precise 3.4 degrees of incline, which was perfect for the timing, but sometimes led the balls to jump the track. Given that each of the machine's dozens of stages need comparably precise adjustments it all adds up to a lot of labor by a lot of people and uh he said that they worked with 55 to 60 people working on the project at all times that included eight core builders who did the bulk of the design and building along with another 12 or so builders who helped part-time in addition sin labs recruited 30 more people to help with the reset after each run and if you've seen the video you know that reset includes things like thousands of ping pong balls falling out of buckets and uh, water spilling down this elaborate waterfall system. Pretty much anything you can imagine making a mess. So I, I could just see it being hours of reset for every attempt. The Sin Lab intern is the one that sets up the dominoes. Yeah, it, that's, like- that's total. There were probably a lot of intern jobs on this. <laughs> that's, that's the intern job for sure. Setting yeah. up dominoes is... Not fun. The trick is between like every 10, 15 dominoes, you take, you know, a few out so that if you knock down that section, it doesn't start the domino effect. Whoa. Yeah, man. That's dominologist <laughs> in, info right there. <laughs> basic, do, do, uh, yeah, basic, whatever the thing is, ology. Nailed it. <laughs> so for a domino, time, this was the number domino- one. Domino. Dominoology. That's why I was having trouble with that. There it is. Dominology. So for, a, for a time, <laughs> this was the number one viewed video on YouTube. So that kind of speaks to how great it is. I really love learning this, but we're going to move on. That's a. Uh, By the way, it's that's 11 my, years old. That makes me feel old. Yeah, I remember. I remember the first time I heard this, and it was uh, I was definitely a child. But that's my <laughs> third favorite of their videos. My second favorite is uh, the the video for the one moment, and this video and this song it's it's all about accessing a different realm of perception through math essentially. Like that's the kind of the theme they're going for with the video, and the video appears to be a one take, but it's actually several intensive stunts all cleverly edited together. They shot this video at two thousand frames per second, which is super slow mo. A uh, normal video is 24 frames a second. 
So this is slowing it down. It's, I think it's 83% or so, and uh, or 83 times. And once again, all of these individual vignettes, they feel match up perfectly to the song. So the intro shot is Tim Norwood again. He has a flip book and he does this super fast lip sync and behind him are these exploding Morton salt cans. So this was a, this was a collaboration with Morton salt, but they explode in like different colored salt and they slow it down. So when they slow it down, what, what he is, he lip syncs and it matches perfectly at this 2000 frames per second to the song. His flip book is of an animation of Damien, the lead singer, singing the lyrics of the song and it matches up perfectly and to do this he had to lip sync basically 83 times the speed of the song to make his lips move the right speed so it matched up when they slowed it down to 24 frames per second and just the the timing and the vision that goes into making his lips match make the flip book match make the exploding salt cans all match the beat of the music it's it's one of those things that, like I said at the beginning, it just like defies what I thought humans would be capable of, but just so the is there ability. like a behind the scenes or do they show it at a normal rate? That's the, that's the cool thing about this band. I have more links tonight than I've ever had because there nice. are so many behind the scenes about all of this. So 83 yes, times, it, it, is that like pretty much Brett's wow. moving his lips real quick. <laughs> But they uh, at the beginning of the of the video they show the entire thing compressed down to four seconds, which is about real time for each. You know, if you put all the vignettes together, and then they slow it down. And wow. this uh, this has a, a really inspirational and it's it's kind of sad and it's kind of happy lyric. And I'm going to read this lyric, but it's it's the first line of the song. It's really hard to not sing it when I read it. But uh, here it goes. <clears throat> So the lyric is, there's nothing more lovely, there's nothing more profound than the certainty that all of this will end. And the way he sings it and the way the music carries, I think this song perfectly embodies what my favorite musical genre is. It's something that I, I think I made this up. I call it triumphant tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I've just I found that a lot of the music... About this. Yeah, a lot of the music I like will have really just like jubilant, happy music with these sad lyrics or these really happy lyrics with sad music. And it, it's, I think it's like a beautiful juxtaposition, your favorite word. And I think that it's, you know, it's a really great, uh, it's a really great way to elicit emotion. And this lyric has been in my head for a few days because I've been watching the video a lot. And I thought about this while I was jumping today. In, in a sense of where this would be like a happy lyric. Um, you know, it's nothing more lovely, nothing more profound than the certainty that all this will end. I thought about that while I was, while I was on the plane today. And the fact that knowing that I'm only going to do, you know, three, four jumps today, and then I'm going to go home and I'm going to go back to, you know, arguably a normal life. It just made like those moments sitting on the plane where I would usually just be bored out of my skull waiting to go skydive, you know, it made me appreciate those moments more because I'm, you know, even sitting in an airplane and climbing up to altitude, even though that's the boring part of skydiving, that's such an incredible experience that so few people will ever get just that part, which to us seems like so mundane. And it's the part where we're burning time. 
it's just cool to be able to look out the door, look out the open plane. Uh, you look out the open door of the plane and see the world going on around you from, you know, 8,000 feet. Just take it all in. It's, it's such a, it's such a gift we have that we're able to skydive. And that's the kind of thing that lyrics like this make me think of. You got the attitude of gratitude. And I, I agree with you 100%. I've always been really interested when I hear like a MGMT or like a passion pit song. Um, exactly. The lyrics don't match the the tone, um, and there's there's something like weirdly attractive about that, and I and I agree with you. It's interesting. I, I I can't put my finger on it. I feel I feel like it goes a little deeper than just like the contrast of it. it there's really Definitely. something. It's almost like a unsettling, but like like you know wanting to look at a car accident or like wanting to sit in a scary movie. Like there's something magnetic about those qualities being put together. Like we're humans. And when you uh-huh. combine happiness and sadness and you make it something that's palatable, I just think that's really that's really powerful because you're hitting like the two extreme ends of the emotional scale. Yeah. And those are hard things I think to hit at the same time. Well, I was listening to um uh Sean Carroll's uh Mindscape podcast all about they were he was um interviewing this social psychologist. It was all about um cognitive dissonance and i guess there's a theory that um and it's it was very convincing and i think that this is like widely accepted in most of those circles but that our brains are just not really built to hold two opposing views at the same time so we'll very quickly i mean it literally in the space of like half a second we will change our story we will change our narrative um so that you know we will completely see one of those things in a totally separate way so that it matches like a previously held belief or the other alternative view. So maybe we inherently know that it's like good training to hold a happy thought and a sad thought together because we're not good at it. And it really warps our, uh, our perception of the truth. If that makes sense. Yeah. And also not being good at that is, kind of why humans are so bad at multitasking. It's <laughs> like, oh, I'm so efficient, but I just do everything really bad. <laughs> it's like you, it, it's almost impossible to hold, you know, two uh, subjects in your mind at the same time. Also, it doesn't even matter if they're opposing. It's just so hard to do two things because your mind is t- total, like one, one trick pony. You just yeah. go one direction, really. And if you start doing anything else, it just jumps the track. And hundred percent. Then you get that train crash that everybody likes looking at. I I have never heard you squeeze so many idiomatic expressions <laughs> into like two sentences. That was amazing. Want to see how far I could take it? <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to this video. Yeah. So to pull this off, this elaborate slow mo coordination, they basically pulled a sniper move and they weaponized math which is something these guys are kind of known for. So they had endless spreadsheets cataloging how all, how long all of these actions took. And they broke it down frame by frame and created something that seems humanly impossible. Humans are so clever that the the cleverness of humanity really shines through with okay, go. So they had to shoot these videos in this video and vignettes and stitch it all together because, uh, they said there weren't robots fast enough to track this action in real time. So they had to break it down into essentially like one or two second clips. And 
just last night I was watching this and I noticed that they're all dressed in extremely drab gray outfits. And the final shot, it goes into real time and it has them walking through. It's just like these gigantic showers of paint. And this song is about uh, making the most out of life's valuable moments. It's another great analogy how shooting the video, they start off in a white background and they're in gray. And the only color comes from when these, these slow-mo events happen. And it's a, it seemed like a really cool analogy about how shooting this video, like it brought, it brought color into their world. It's kind of the feeling I got because they're getting to experience not only being rock stars, but also probably once in the history of humanity events to be part of these crazy things that have never happened. Probably no one will ever put the effort in to make them happen again. So it, it really seems like, you know, they were making a statement about how much greatness and joy getting to make these things brings into their life. It does seem like they have the absolute coolest job of anybody I've ever heard of ever. It's amazing. So, so that's, that's your number two. That's your number two. Okay. I was just going to ask. So number one, this is quite possibly the most impressive thing that's ever been filmed. And this is my favorite thing on the internet. The only music video I've ever seen that gave me raging fits of jealousy. And this is the upside down and inside out video where they, uh, they fly in zero gravity for the entire oh, video. Nice. Now, you know what the vomit comet is, right? Of course. So you're a you are an aviation man. Maybe you can describe <laughs> what the what the vomit comet is in quasi technical terms. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by aviation man, but I, you know what I mean. I guess it fits the if the shoe fits, <laughs> as Josh might say. I was trying um, to say that you're a pilot in a kind of humorous way. Okay, so I'm not sure exactly what aircraft that they use, and I don't know if it's operated by NASA or it's like subcontracted to somewhere else, but essentially you have a large transport category jet, like a 737 or an MD-11 or something. It, they've hollowed out the interior, and so that, you know, where you would usually sit on a passenger commercial jet, They've removed all the seats. They've added like a flat floor and some padding, maybe like a handrail. I'm not sure exactly what the what the um, setup is, but essentially they'll take you up to a certain altitude and then they'll fly just parabolic arcs that are probably, I mean, more than just a few thousand feet. Like they're probably ascending and descending. Stats. Oh, okay. See, you probably know more about this because I've never really Googled it or anything like that, but I just... You know, I've just seen some some clips of it, and um, but you know, when you're climbing, as they're climbing, you're experiencing either one G or even more than one G because of that force on your body, and then you reach the top of that uh, trajectory, and then once the plane is in a fast enough descent, you know, you're essentially in zero G. I mean, your gravity is still acting on you just like it is the astronauts, but you now have a frame of reference around you being the um you know the fuselage of the aircraft you're in that's falling with you so you can they're falling the same speed as the plane exactly it's it's basically like being in a wind tunnel with no wind yeah the sense of weightlessness that it appears they're experiencing so they would fly these parabolas uh 27,000 feet would be the apex and they would dive to 18,000 feet and they got about 27 seconds of weightlessness 
And this is a side note, but um, for my honeymoon, we bought tickets to go fly the Vomit Comet in Florida. And uh, we were we basically planned our entire year around this. I mean, this is one of life's main events. And uh, two weeks before we were heading out, we got a call from NASA or whoever the hell likes to break people's hearts. And they told <laughs> us that uh, our flight had been canceled because some somebody had bought the whole plane out for the next two weeks. So again, this once in a lifetime opportunity was canceled because I don't know, somebody needed to go see how ants perform in free fall or something. Who knows what it was, <laughs> but it was such a crushing blow to my psyche. What if but it was I like, Michael, now I get to live vicariously through these guys. What if it was like Michael Bay or actually here's a real, here's a real twist. What if it was okay, go recording your number one favorite music video. Well, guess what? I know it wasn't because <laughs> okay. they flew to Star City in Russia and they worked with the Russian space agency to use their vomit comet to shoot this video. God bless the Russians, man. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> they don't have blue jeans, but they have vomit comets. So the uh, that's probably more of a Soviet thing. So this video, it appears to be one long uncut performance, and it is, but it has a little bit of clever editing. And the way they made this work is fascinating. So they built a mock-up of a passenger jet cabin, and they put that inside the Vomit Comet because you'll see in the video, it looks like they're sitting in a passenger jet. And in the beginning, they went up and they just started playing in zero gravity. They had no script. They had no plan. They just went to spend time in zero gravity to learn what was possible and what they were going to be able to perform. So they played around. They found out what type of stunts and performance they could do and kind of things that look good. And the things that, you know, were going to film well. And they just basically played around and figured it out on the spot. And then they started scripting. And Damien, the lead singer, he was very excited, but everyone else was basically scared and nervous. And that kind of carried through this entire shoot. So they hired these two hot Russian dancers to perform. Just think of all the doors that would be opened up to you, Brett, if you were hot. And then uh, they... they at Star City, they did a full medical exam every single morning. And then the first week, they did six flights just playing around. And over the course of a month, they put together their plan. And uh, this, it's quite possibly the greatest music video of all time. They pulled off this uncut performance. It's a three-plus-minute song. Again, they weaponized math to work this, uh, make this work with the 27-second uh, parabolas. So they broke the song down into nine 21-second sections, and they created performances based around that. Then they slowed the song down, uh, the 21-second sections. They slowed it down to 27 seconds. That's the length of the parabola. And then they played that back in the cabin, and they, when they went into free fall, they would perform all the actions that they had planned, slightly slowed down to match the music, and then at the end of the parabola, they all froze in place for several minutes while they climbed back up to altitude. And then uh, it, when zero gravity kicked back in, they performed the next section. And in the editing process, they go and they just speed up those climb portions. So it goes down to like one frame. So it appears that they're just in infinite zero gravity. And that was the, the first question I had when I watched this video. I was like, how, how? Because I already knew I'd been planning 
you know, to go have my heart broken by NASA. So I, I knew that it worked in these short chunks. And luckily, there is hours and hours of information and background footage about how they did this. So we'll share that as well. Okay, so they so you're saying they were able to hold still every single time good enough while a plane is undergoing a massive climb and their bodies are undergoing uh, you know several G's possibly and they and you didn't see any like awkward movement or anything like that. That's that's amazing. It's really well edited and what's more impressive to me than them is uh they led like all these disco balls and balloons and everything free and when gravity comes back in you can tell it's part of the performance sometimes all that stuff falls to the floor but then it kicks right back into zero gravity and the balls seem like they haven't really moved on the floor at all that's one of the most mind-boggling things about this other than interesting damien's amazing moves he has a a blind backflip where he pushes himself down the cabin between the rows of chairs he threads the needle between two of the other band members uh, he he barely rolls over before he gets to the back of the cabin, and then uh, he does a a diving barrel roll towards the camera at one point. It just looks so smooth. It's just the kind of thing like as a wind tunnel flyer. It it kind of hurts my heart a little bit that I'm not getting to do this. <laughs> you, I know you would be good at this, but I do want to actually. Now that you brought up this comparison. I don't think being in zero gravity would be at all like flying in the wind tunnel because we are, it's all about pushing wind with your body, manipulating wind, deflecting wind to get a desired result. There's It'd be nothing, momentum management. Yeah. It's, it's all about, uh, you know, your, your like initial trajectory and then possibly shifting, like moving your arms to like adjust slightly. But like once you push off the wall in a certain way, there's probably not a whole lot that you can which adjust. is why it's so amazing his <laughs> yeah. tricks but the, that's the, awesome uh, man i've wondered this also because they they talk about the band three of them didn't want to go damien was super into it but they were talking about getting sick and i wonder if people like us that have a lot of wind tunnel experience which is basically zero gravity that's the sensation i wonder if it would affect our inner ear I, w- I wonder if flying in a wind tunnel would train you to not get seasick in a scenario like that. You know, that's, I don't know, but my guess would be um, it wouldn't help a lot. I mean, I've flown a lot of airplanes and I still get nauseous doing aerobatic flying um, pretty quickly as well. And I think it is something that you can train out of, but I just, don't have enough you know exposure to aerobatic flying but like i never got nauseous in the wind tunnel and you know we any instructor did multiple flips and you know uh up and down and this and that but i i know a lot of you know where nausea comes from is the signals that are coming into your brain like visual input like where the horizon is like if you're flying you want to be you know, looking at the horizon, if you close your eyes, move your head around a lot. Now, now you're messing with, you know, you're not giving a lot of input or a lot of the, the, um, positioning signals into your brain. So imagine that's why the vomit comet is named what it is. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not looking outside at the horizon. I think it's pretty common to get sick in it. That's, I mean, that's why you get car sick. You know, if you're reading something and your point of reference is static and the whole car is moving, 
but yeah. I don't know, man. I'd love to try it. I who knows, but I don't feel like it would make me feel sick. Just from what I know about things that I've other things I've done. I guess you never know until you have your heart broken by NASA, yeah. which means you never know. Well, I can say with certainty, I wouldn't let the risk uh, or the you know the possibility of throwing up stop me from riding in the vomit comet. In fact, Indeed not. even if I knew 100% I was going to vomit, I would still get in that comet. Get it out. <laughs> so this actually, this whole thing about being sick, this led to, they call this maybe the tensest moment in the band. So they had performed their final flight and they got what they thought was the perfect take. But when they watched it back, there's a section at the end, they call it the Thunderdome. This is where they're popping balloons full of paint and throwing pinatas around and everything. They found out that they got a a spot of paint on the lens and that essentially ruined the take. And so they had some options. They could have tried to take a, a recording that final recording and then edit in a different Thunderdome. But they said that that's not really what they wanted because they're all about these one takes. And Andy, the guitarist, pianist, vocalist, he definitely didn't want to go. And it led to this tension where they were kind of deciding to settle on something. You know, they, they say it was great, but it wasn't what they wanted. But they all decided to go back up for one more try and they get the take that you see in the video. And this video is something that you really have to see. You have, it's a type of thing that you need to watch it at least 10 times. So you can keep your eyes on one particular performance all the way through. Cause there's that much going on. So I can imagine how hard it was to get this perfect take. That's, that is quite the, uh, I don't know if I want to call it the endorsement, but that's saying a lot that you have to watch. You're recommending to our, uh, our content students, who I like, <laughs> who you actually <laughs> like to watch this particular piece of content that you as a contentologist, a real thing is recommending to watch, to watch it 10 times. That's, At least. <laughs> <laughs> well, good thing you can't force people to do it. This is not Soviet Russia. Not yet. This is America. We'll happens. So you're free so to overall, watch it at least 10 times, as many times as you want. <laughs> in fact, that's a mandate. So overall, they did 21 flights, 15 parabolas each. That means that they learned and executed this thing in 8,820 seconds, which is a mere 147 hours in free fall. That's so more than Yuri Gargarin and uh, Dr. Komarov, or... Uh, Cosmonaut Komarov put together times like 10. Well, they both died really young. So <laughs> exactly. I can't imagine they had a lot of experience. But when you watch <laughs> this video, this is what 6.12 days in zero gravity looks like. And yes, I did the math because I'm very jealous. That is awesome. Wow. So, so I could talk forever about their videos. They have a bunch of other videos. I had a bunch of honorable mentions, but honestly... I don't have time to do them all, but I will mention one. It's a, it's called art together now. And this one was created during the pandemic. They wrote the song, performed it, recorded it, and then created the video all during the pandemic. And there's a bunch of different versions, but the one that uh, I really like is the, uh, it's the at home collaboration where they had, they had an idea 
kind of a, a, a script for the visuals, but they sent out the script to different artists and had them create animations that they stitch all these animations together. So it's one fluid story, but the animation style keeps changing. And um, the song, it's kind of about the pandemic and lockdown and emerging from that lockdown in a more beautiful state than before. And there's a, there's a lyric they say over and over alone in the chrysalis. And there's like a the butterfly theme in the song, but this, I, I started showing these videos to Isla, my four-year-old, and she loved the visuals so much that she started singing the songs. And now she knows the word chrysalis because of okay, go. That's awesome. Yeah. This sounds That's really cool. This sounds way better than all the celebrities singing. Imagine in a compilation yeah. video off key and everything. Pure awful. <laughs> So I'm going to wrap this up soon, but I do have, there's one other really interesting fact. Uh, so they're, they're the first band to ever have their album blocked by the FDA. The FDA? So, yes. So in 2015, Damien learned about uh, the advancements in genetic encoding and heard about a book being encoded to DNA. And he wanted to do something similar with the band's fourth album, Hungry Ghosts. And he said, Encoding an album on DNA involves translating the data from binary to base four code using the four nucleotides, A, C, T, and G, found within the structure of DNA. Thousands of albums could be stored in a few drops of liquid. To hear the album, however, it would have, t- it would have, ta- have to be taken back to a lab and retranslated. And the album was blocked by the FDA, of all people, because they were worried about anything that involves DNA, I, I suppose, against like some sort of contamination or whatever. This doesn't seem like a good use of tax dollars, I'm saying. But it's <laughs> yeah. uh, a very strange honor for a band, I think. What a great use of tax dollars I, is a phrase I've never heard about anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man, OK Go seems like at the cutting edge of everything. I'm surprised that the very first band to release an album as an NFT, as a non-fungible token, is not OK Go. It's Kings of Leon. I really wish OK Go beat them to the punch. Yeah, that does seem like something they would have intentionally gone for. So, uh, yeah, these, these guys, I mean, they do a lot. They're outspoken about free speech and digital rights. Damien testified in the, at the uh, House Judiciary meeting about net neutrality. And uh, they have a highly engaged and active YouTube channel. It, it seems like hundreds of videos of people asking them fan questions and then answering all of them, uh, describing like how their videos are made, like what their favorite food is, just pretty much anything. And it's it seems like these days, you almost don't want to learn too much about the artists you like because you're afraid they'll turn out to be some sort of r kelly style monster but the more i learn about the, these guys the more i love them i mean they're they're true 20 21st century artists they're creating visual and audio art that can only be possible with the technology of our day and they show that technology off in their videos and uh you know they, they really leverage that stuff and it you know it kind of make they make it possible at the beginning of their videos that, to explain the process so they really lay it out for you as the viewer and at the end, they often leave in the footage of the crew celebrating or them asking, do we get it? You know, it really tells a story of how hard these things are, how many takes it, how many attempts it takes. And I can imagine that feeling. It's kind of like pulling off one of these would be kind of like completing a skydiving world record. You know, it's, 
when I've done those, I've done two of them. And at the end of it, everybody has a feeling in free fall that you accomplished it and you got it, but you never really know there's this suspense in the air and everyone's on the edge of their seat because you can feel like this wave of hundred percenters, but until the judges come back and watch the video and confirm it, you don't really know if like your entire journey for the last two years of doing all the training and going to the camps and then going to this world record attempt, you don't really know if it's going to be worth something until they come back and confirm it all. It's very unique and amazing experience. And that's what it seems like the end of every one of these videos when the crew just like explodes into celebrate into celebration. You know, it's one of the, it's one of the highlights of every one of the videos. Interesting. Wow. I like that take a lot. I, I have never done anything epic enough to warrant that sort of like, uh, (laughs) that sort of excitement in the air between a, a you know, stimulus and a response, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's definitely one of those things that you, you can't really get that many places. You you can't really bottle that feeling up. It's like the, you're talking about like an Olympian that like, you know, swims the lap and like touches at almost the same time and is like looking up at the board and they think they won, but they're waiting for the time to show up on the, on the board, the scoreboard, something like that. Well, maybe even more interesting though, is like the collaborative effort of it because mm. I feel like any one person could put their mind to a task and just keep going and going and going until you get it to, if it's physically possible. But when you're coordinating like on a world record, you know, I think the most recent one is in the 200s, 200 plus people that are have all dedicated decades of their life to honing their individual skill to make it possible for you to even participate in something like that. Same thing with these, you know, these people have spent these engineers and scientists, whoever works on these things, they've spent easily decades of their life just building the mental skill set to be able to do the one little thing that they can do to make this, this vomit comet video, this Rube Goldberg machine work. And then you put them all together and it requires all the planning, but also the perfect execution by not just the scientists and engineers, but also the band. That's just, it's such a cool thing to see at the end that they, they show off all the people that help make it happen. Cause it's not them doing these things. You know, they're just like the facilitators and they have the vision, but it, it requires humans, you know, groups yeah. of humans to make it happen. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Like my dream would be to see them perform a wind tunnel video. Maybe I'll petition them to do that. So, we could have everyone that listens to the show sign it and just imagine how they would respond to 35 signatures. How could they say no? (laughs) We do have a wide reach. It's, it's a big responsibility. So Brett, this one wasn't for you because I know you already love these guys. This one was for any listener that doesn't know who they are or any listener that already loves them. Everyone go check out these videos and then like all their stuff and then comment that the content clearinghouse sent you because that will really boost our exposure. <laughs> I, like, I like it. You know, actually, this episode is for me because I have not really been uh, – OK Go has not been in my content circuit for a long-ass time. And I can't wait to binge their YouTube channel after recording because I the, your top two videos, I don't think I've seen your top two. Wow. And maybe I'll get well, some ideas to take to work. Uh, tomorrow or the next day when I go flying next, I could 
take a page out of the OK Go Vomit Comet book of <laughs> I Russian tips. I can't believe tips. you haven't seen the Vomit Comet video. <laughs> I have not seen So I'll seen share it. every video that I talked about today, as well as all of the behind the scenes, all the making of. There's a really cool link called Gravity's Just a Habit. It's a 15-minute documentary about the making of Upside Down and Inside Out, the Vomit Comet video. And it is arguably more interesting than the video because if you if you know the video and you have that in the back of your mind you watch this thing you get to see essentially every question you could imagine about how they made it it's all answered in this video so that's really incredible sometimes the behind the scenes is better than the content itself but it requires good content to have good behind the scenes it's science it's just a symbiotic relationship of course well josh i am absolutely blown away in all my year of podcasting (laughs) never did i think you would break the molds like this and do it so successfully so thank you top one compliments i've ever received from you (laughs) and and you're actually on the list of people i like so (laughs) short list apparently (laughs) i love you guys just so you know and i love you too Okay, go ahead and find us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends that we have a great show here. Even if you don't like it, just just tell your friends. Go listen to the Content Clearinghouse. (laughs) Josh, thank you so much. That was absolutely incredible. And uh, I can't wait to see you next week on the Content Clearinghouse. Why was what was I gonna tell you about? Uh, I had an okay go thought. Oh, something about the titles of their songs. They it just it seems like they know they're trying to make something timeless and classic. Just the way that they like title the name of their band, title their songs. There's just something so like I don't know. Non this too shall pass. Non nondescript, but. Um, very cutting or like, yeah, this too shall pass inside out and upside down. It's very, it's very well thought out. Like, yeah, I love that, that lyric, uh, this too shall pass. That is something that I used to say when I was younger, when I was like having a hard time. I remember that was like a thing that would be in my head. I don't know where I even picked it up, but I was thinking about, uh, so the one moment, that's uh-huh. that song is kind of about appreciating the the moments in your life, the good moments in your life. And in the lyrics, they kind of frame that with talking about like one of the lyrics is like uh, entropy's cruel hand. So they're talking about like the passage of time and how these things like slip through your fingers. But it's about really like not taking for granted the great things. Yeah. And then this too shall pass is i mean just clearly like from that lyric that song seems to be like it's about getting through the hard times so it's really i don't know it, it's kind of like what we talked about with the one moment how that song kind of spans like the emotional range it's interesting to see they have that that kind of emotional range in you know the the bigger picture the things they sing about well i think it was gandalf the gray that said this too shall wait <laughs> this shall yeah. not pass <laughs> this shall not pass this that's shall not pass that's what he said <laughs> pretty sure